Scripture reading this evening will be read from 2 John 4 through 7. 2 John 4 through 7. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive men as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, Lady, not as thou I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Good evening and welcome again. We're very grateful for your presence tonight. We are going to be looking at 2 John in just a moment. We're going to be talking about walking with the Lord. And before we do that, we want to express appreciation to those of you who are visiting with us tonight. As always, we invite you to come back and be with us. We have been blessed today with a baptism and with other additions to the church here. And we're grateful for that, and we are very grateful for the work that is going on here. And it's our prayer that God will continue to bless the church and that we can make known New Testament Christianity in this community to the best of our ability. Tonight we want to talk about walking with the Lord. Life can be very tough. I can't imagine living life without the Lord. And yet the beauty of Christianity is that we do not have to face life alone. The truth of the matter is we can walk with the Lord and we can live in his presence on a daily basis. And we have the assurance that if we live according to his will, that he will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. And so it's a great blessing to be in Christ and to enjoy all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 3. Tonight we want to think about, for a moment or two, we want to talk about the importance of walking in the Lord and the blessings that I believe we enjoy as a result of our relationship with the Lord. The first thing that I would do is call your attention to the message that directs our walk. And when we talk about the message that directs our walk, really what we're doing is emphasizing a divine pattern. And we're saying that God's word is what effectively guides us here on this earth. Ultimately, it's what leads us from earth to heaven. You remember in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, John said, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his son Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. To walk in the light simply means to walk in accordance with the will of Almighty God. John is writing to some people who were walking in the truth. And John, no doubt, was very glad. As a matter of fact, he will say, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in the truth. You and I, we can walk in divine truth. We can live according to the truth of Almighty God. There are two things that I think we need to understand. First of all, we need to appreciate the revelation of truth. There are a lot of people today that have difficulty understanding the concept of absolute truth. And yet we believe that God has given us a body of truth. That is, he has given us revelation. This revelation comes to us by the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired holy men of God. And they wrote for us what we call the Bible. 
Now as we think about the truth, I'm reminded of Pontius Pilate when he stood in the presence of Jesus and he asked the question, as John tells us in John 18 verse 38, what is truth? Jesus provides the answer to this question. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Jesus, of course, emphasizing truth. Now when we talk about truth, I said a moment ago that the Holy Spirit has revealed the truth of Almighty God. In John 16, verse 13, when Jesus engaged in a lengthy discussion with the apostles, he said, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come? He will guide you into all truth. Today we have all truth. Everything that we need to know, we have it. As a matter of fact, Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that we need to know about life and godliness, God has revealed. As a matter of fact, Peter would say in verse 4, that contained in the word of God are exceedingly great and precious promises. All of the great precious promises that have been revealed in scripture come to us by Almighty God. And so we have the truth of Almighty God. And Jesus said, you can know the truth. In John 8, verse 32, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The apostle Paul said, in Ephesians chapter three, that he received revelation from Almighty God. He said he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So we can know the truth, we can believe the truth, we can live by the truth. So having said that, let's talk for just a moment about the reception of truth. Now here were people, John is writing to some people that had been receptive to the truth of Almighty God. It's important that we receive the truth. As a matter of fact, we have to understand that there is a distinction between truth and error, between the message that comes to us from God and the message that is nothing more than man-made. The message we're talking about originated with Almighty God. This message is divine. Now, what about being receptive to the truth? John is writing, as I said a moment ago, to people that were walking in the truth. They had been receptive to the truth of Almighty God. I think about the saints in Thessalonica. When Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said that he gave thanks unto God for them without ceasing. Because when they heard the word of God from them, they received it, not as the word of men, but he said, as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively also works in you who believe. When we are receptive to the truth of God and we live according to the truth of God, then it can, it can have a positive effect in our life. Two things as we think about being receptive to the truth. First, I would suggest that the truth of God governs. God's word ought to govern our lives. Now we live, we live in the state of Mississippi and we understand that we are amenable to the laws of the state we are, amenable, we are amenable to the laws of this city. And in a broader context, we are amenable to the laws of the Constitution. That is, that body of information that governs our nation. We understand that. Well, spiritually speaking, we are to be governed by the word of Almighty God. 
the standard. It's truth. Jesus is the lawgiver. And he is the one who has given unto us his law. And so we have to live in accordance with this law. Now James would tell us in James 1.25 that it is the perfect law of liberty. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 2 that it is the law of Christ. Jesus said all authority, all power had been given unto him in heaven and on earth. And so Paul would say in Colossians 3 at verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying there is that you and I, we are to live in accordance with the precepts of God. We are to live by the authority of Christ. In other words, our lives are to be governed by his word. So truth governs the life. And then secondly, truth guides the life. Jeremiah in the long ago in Jeremiah 10, 23 said, it is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. Without the truth of Almighty God, we have no hope. Those of us who are here tonight, we want to go to heaven. And I think all of us, we're in agreement with that. We want to go to heaven. We want to see other people go to heaven. But we can't make it to heaven without a divine compass. If we're going to get from earth to heaven, then we've got to have a divine compass. That divine compass is the word of God. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105. He said, your word is a light unto my feet, and a, or rather is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. God's word ultimately dispels spiritual darkness. There are a lot of people that are groping in spiritual darkness today. And the reason is because they've not tuned in to the word of God. They've not allowed the word of God to brighten their lives. In other words, to dispel the spiritual darkness that is surrounding them. I mentioned, I mentioned just a moment ago that we can know the truth. And as we think about being guided by the truth, doesn't it only stand to reason that if we're going to be guided by the truth, if we want to go to heaven, that we're going to become knowledgeable of his word? Paul said, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is in Ephesians 5, 17. I think about people who want, who want to know the word of God and who, who want to live closer to the Lord. Well, if you want to be closer to the Lord and you want to, to know God's word, then you've got to delve into this book. You've got to spend some time in it. The psalmist of old said he meditated on the truth of God both day and night in Psalm 1 at verse 2. But then I want you to think with me in the second place about the motivation behind our walk. And really, what's the purpose behind our walk? Why, why do we live in accordance with the will of God? Well, hopefully and prayerfully, it's because we love the Lord. First of all, let me call attention to the acid test of love. There are a lot of people in our world today, they'll tell you they love the Lord, and yet their lives are not in harmony with his will. Is that not a contradiction? Is it not the case that if we love the Lord, we're gonna live in compliance with his will? To me, I think that we demonstrate our love for God by living in obedience to his will. John would say in 1 John chapter 2 at verse three, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. 
When we keep the commands of God, then we demonstrate or manifest our great love for him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? He said, you'll keep my commandments in John 14, 15. Motivating, motivating ourselves is not easy. I, I think about this time of year, the first of the year. There are a lot of people that have made New Year's resolutions. And sometimes they will make a resolution to get in shape, to lose weight, etc. And they are motivated when the year begins, but somewhere along the line, they lose that motivation. Spiritually speaking, we have to be motivated. And I think about trying to motivate people to, to be present for the worship services, to come to Bible study, to spend time in the Word of God, to spend time in prayer. And I can talk until I'm blue in the face, and I can try to be a catalyst. I can try to motivate people to do that. But ultimately, if people are going to be what they ought to be within the body of Christ, they're going to have to dig deep and grow in love. They're going to have to grow in their love for the Lord. When we truly love the Lord, then we don't have a problem studying his word. We don't have a problem spending time in prayer. It's not a problem to come together on the first day of the week and worship God. It's not a problem for us in the middle of the week to pause and to come together to meet for corporate Bible study. Why? Because we love the Lord. Now as we think about demonstrating our love for God, listen to what John said in 1 John 5 verse 3. He said, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome or grievous. Now, think with me for a moment about some of the things that we're to do as Christians. We are to read the word of God. We are to pray. We are to assemble for corporate worship. We come together for Bible study. We are to be involved in the work of the kingdom. All of these are commands given unto us by Jehovah God. John said, if we love him, we keep his commandments his commandments are not a burden. When you really love the Lord, it's not a burden to be involved in the work of the church. It's not a burden to come together on the first day of the week. It's not a burden to give every first day of the week. Why? Because, because it's backed up by love. I think about the courtship years. We, we've got a lot of young people here. Some are dating, some will be dating. When, when two people start dating, what, what do they typically want to do? Most folks want to spend all the time they can with the person they're dating. Why is that? Because there's a bond there. They go from friendship to courtship. And undergirding that friendship and courtship is love. It would be a rare relationship to have to force a young man or young woman to be together, to want to spend time together. I remember back when I was dating. Man, I wanted to spend all the time I could with Nancy. She didn't have to beg me to come over to her house. She didn't have to call me from the dorm and say, you want to go get something to eat tonight? I did it because I wanted to do it, because I had fallen in love. So here's the question. How much do we love the Lord? Have we truly 
fallen in love with the Lord. We talk about the acid test of love. It is obedience. Listen, listen if you would to what it said in verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is a commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. One of the reasons why members of the body of Christ are half-hearted in their efforts for the cause, one of the reasons why so many members of the body of Christ are apathetic or complacent is because they lack love. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22? Jesus said we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. When you genuinely love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and mind, it's not a problem to obey him. So, the acid test of love. But then I want you to think about the application of true love. The idea here is, how do we make it real in life? Is it not the case that God's word is to have an impact in my life? Is it not the case that God's word is supposed to change my life for the better? If God's word hasn't changed your life, something's wrong. We talk about striving to live in accordance with the will of God. Listen again to what John said. Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. John said if we say we love him and do not keep his commandments, he said we're a liar and his truth does not abide in us or his truth is not in us so we've got to live in compliance with his will so how do we make application how do we apply what the Bible says to our own lives well listen again to what John said in verse 5 and then look at verse 6 he said now I plead with you lady not as though I wrote a new commandment to you but that which we had from the beginning that we love one another this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. I want to first of all begin by looking at verse 6 again. Because he said this is love that we walk according to his commandments. If we genuinely love the Lord, we will begin by obeying his will and being baptized into Christ. That's the beginning point. There are a lot of people, religiously speaking, that want to quibble over what God has said about New Testament baptism. There are a lot of people in the religious world that literally try to wave it off. I remember hearing a well-known preacher, as a matter of fact, this, this particular individual is internationally known. And I watched him on television one day, and I think I heard him by way of the internet as well, because I wanted to verify what he said. But he made the statement that baptism is not an option. Rather, it is an obligation. But then he turned right around and said, but you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven, to be saved. Now listen, that's not consistent. I do not know of many religious groups in our world today that teach the necessity of being baptized into Christ. Most religious people believe that baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. You're saved first, 
and then you're baptized. Now, I know that there are a lot of people that have been taught that baptism is a sign or seal of salvation. And then they come in contact with the truth of Almighty God. They hear what God has said in his word, and they will sometimes come back and say, well, that's what I did. Let me ask this question. Can you be taught wrong and be baptized right? I don't think you can. We have to look to the truth of Almighty God. Listen to what Jesus said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There's not an English teacher in the state of Mississippi that could pen an easier to understand statement than that one. What did the Lord mean? He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Can I understand that? Absolutely. Can I process that? You better believe it. Now here's my question. If that's what Jesus said, and he has all authority as he said in Matthew 28, 18, why would we ever quibble about being baptized? Jesus said that baptism is linked to salvation. On the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the first gospel sermon, those people assembled on that day said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and do what? Be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I can just imagine Peter preaching that same message in our era today. Can you imagine the responses that he would, that he would get today? There are a lot of people in the religious world that would say, wait a minute, Peter. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't have to be baptized into Christ to enjoy forgiveness. You don't have to be baptized into Christ so that you can be saved. Peter was an inspired apostle. Peter knew exactly what he was saying. If there was another divine formula for salvation, Peter would have given it. What Peter said coincides with what Jesus said. When the apostle Paul recounted his conversion to Christ, he said that Ananias instructed him in the long ago, and now why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Paul linked baptism and the washing away of sins together. He lumped them together. Why would we quibble over what the Lord said? Now we're talking about making application of true love. If we genuinely love the Lord, it's not a question, do I have to be baptized? Now bear in mind, I'm not saying that, that baptism is any more important than belief. They are both essential. As a matter of fact, you can look at every step in the plan of salvation beginning with belief. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And Jesus said, if you die in your sins, where I am, there you cannot come. Jesus also mandated that we confess him before others, Matthew 10, 32. And then we are to be baptized into Christ. Now, why are we baptized into Christ? Well, number one, because the Bible commands it. Number two, we're baptized into Christ because when we're baptized, we are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. 
Why do we need to be baptized into the death of Christ? Because that's where the blood was shed in death, John 19, 34. You can't contact the blood of Christ without being baptized into Christ. You can't be a member of the body of Christ without being baptized into Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, by one spirit were you all baptized into one body. What's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. Well, somebody asked the question, how many bodies are there? How many churches are there? Listen to what Paul said. There's one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. If you had asked somebody in the first century, after having been baptized into Christ, what church do you belong to? What do you think they would have said? Let me tell you what they would have said. They would have said, I'm a member of the church. I am a member of the church of Christ, Romans 6, 16, 16. I'm a member of the church of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 2. Here were people that had been baptized, added to the body of Christ, and thus they belonged to the redeemed body of Almighty God. So, if we really love the Lord, we're going to begin by doing what he says to become a Christian. Let me just pause here and ask this question. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? Based on what the Bible says, have you complied with God's will? If you haven't, my encouragement to you tonight, obey the gospel. So first, we're baptized into Christ, and then we behave in Christ. God's word has to, has to regulate my life. And the idea is that I have a certain code of conduct that I'm to live by. God wants me to behave in his body. He wants me to live according to his divine will. So how do I do that? Well, there are a number of ways. First of all, I, I love as the Lord loved. Listen to what John said, and this is, this is uh, the application part of what we're talking about. Look at verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now we talk about behavior in the body of Christ. What is it John the apostle would have us to, to do? Love one another. Did Jesus not teach that? Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Jesus also said, and we might point out that he prefaced that statement by saying, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another even as I have loved you. God's people had always been commanded to love one another. But what Jesus is saying here is that we are to love as he loved. The depth of love that he had for us, we are to have for one another. So we, we genuinely love one another. We put his word into practice. How do we show our love for one another? Well, we treat one another in a Christian way. We are, as Paul would say, kind, tenderhearted. We forgive one another because that's what the Lord would have us to do. We love like the Lord loved and we live like the Lord lived. How did Jesus live here upon this earth? 
Let me tell you what Peter said. Peter said that Jesus Christ was sinless. He did no sin. Neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. When the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Paul said, be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. Paul said, you need to follow my life, my example, insofar as I live in accordance with the precepts and the example of Jesus Christ. Now John said in 1 John chapter 2, that if we abide in Jesus, that we also ought to walk as he walked. That means we're to walk in his footsteps. Well, what does that mean? It means that I try to live a holy life because Jesus Christ was holy. It means that I go about doing good as Jesus did and as Luke recorded in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. It means that I reach out to those who are lost and dying in sin as Jesus did. It means that I minister to the lives of other people as Jesus did. It means that I demonstrate a heart of compassion for others as Jesus did. That's just practical Christianity at work in the lives of his believers. If we want to change this world, if we want to radically change the world in which we live, then what we have to do is take the life of Christ, the message of Christ, internalize it, and live it out in our everyday lives. Some have said that the greatest sermon ever preached is not verbal. It is an example. You have an example. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believers in word, in manner of life, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. That means show people what it means to be a New Testament Christian. Surely you and I can do that. If we do that, what are we going to do? We're going to impact this world for Christ. We are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're to be a leavening agent for good and a light in a darkened world of sin and unrighteousness. And then thirdly, note if you would some menaces to our walk, some perils that we can face. Note if you would verse 7. In verse 7, John said, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not, who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. John, like other New Testament writers and like the Lord himself, cautioned people about false teachers. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Jesus here putting people on notice that false teachers, those who would espouse error, they are very real. And it is a problem. John would say in 1 John chapter 4, at verse 1, Believe... Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. In the first century, there were any number of false teachers. I think back to the writings of Paul when he wrote to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he spoke of Hymenaeus and Philetus. He said, who concerning the truth have erred teaching that the resurrection is already past. And he said, they overthrow the faith of some. That's why the New Testament writers caution people about false teachers. Well, what about the characteristics of these false teachers? John here identifies one specific group of false teachers. 
Listen to what he said. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. There were some people in the first century that denied the incarnate Christ. That is, they denied the fact that Jesus Christ assumed bodily form. There was a group of people in the first century called Gnostics. They took the view that all matter is inherently evil. And so they couldn't rationalize how sinless deity could take upon himself the form of human flesh. And so they were denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We've talked before about the pre-incarnate Christ. That is the pre-existent Christ. But here, John references the incarnate Christ. Go back to 1 John chapter 1 and note if you would how John drives the point home that they had seen the Son of God, they had heard the word of God, their hands had handled the word of life. And he said, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. John driving home the point that Jesus did indeed come in the flesh. Now over in 1 John chapter 4, John said, by this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit or every teacher that confesses Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. He said, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. He said, of which we have told you would come and is now already in the world. Now, there are a lot of people today talk about the Antichrist and they're looking for some individual to arise sometime in the distant future. And they want to talk about the man of sin and the spirit of Antichrist, etc., etc., and dovetail all of that into any number of things. Well, John said in the first century there were Antichrists present. Who were the Antichrists? Those who denied the incarnate Christ. Those who said that Jesus Christ did not take upon himself human flesh. So, the characteristics. But how do we prevent menaces to our faith? How can you and I guard our spiritual lives against false teachers? Two ways. Number one, educate. I think about people in the church today. And we talk about growing spiritually. And I would say this. You can't grow if you don't know God's word. You can't defend yourself against error if you do not know what this book teaches. Now, Paul said, study to show yourselves approved unto God. A workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is, we have to handle aright God's holy word. Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The byproduct of knowledge, the byproduct of knowing this book is set forth in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14. The Hebrew writer said, when you know this book inside and out, then you have the ability to discern between good and evil. In other words, you can make a distinction between truth and error, right and wrong, etc. So you have to educate yourself. It's going to take time 
to become educated in the Word of God. It doesn't happen overnight. Rome wasn't built in a day, and you're not going to know the Word of God from cover to cover, inside and out, without spending time in this book. It is a lifelong process. And we've got to devote ourselves to studying the truth of Almighty God. So first, educate, and then secondly, evaluate. Whatever you hear, I don't care, I don't care who the speaker is. It doesn't matter where the speaker is. You need to evaluate what you hear in light of what God has said in his word. That includes what I say. You need to take what I say and look at it in light of what God in his word has revealed. We need to be like the Bereans of old who searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Paul was an inspired apostle and those people in the city of Berea, they were checking him out. If they checked out an inspired apostle, it is not an insult to a gospel preacher today for somebody to check him out, to make sure that what he is saying coincides with the word of God. Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Now listen again to what John said. We said, first, educate, then secondly, evaluate. John said, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, but test the spirits. That is, test the teachers. Try them, put them to the test, whether they be of God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The only way that you and I can evaluate what we hear is by this book. This book is the standard. It's not what I say. It's not what somebody else says. It's not what is revealed in some creed or confession of faith or catechism. It's what this book says. Why is it important for me to coincide my life with this book? Because Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. This is a book that's going to judge us one day. So we need to know it. We need to evaluate what we hear in light of this word. There's a beautiful song, Trust and Obey. The first stanza says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. I promise you, if you'll walk with the Lord and in accordance with his word, he will bless your life. If you're here today and you're not a New Testament Christian, I plead to you, come to Christ. Put your faith and trust in him. Come home tonight. Come, come, come to a loving God who wants to abundantly pardon do like they did on Pentecost Day. Repent, be baptized. God will add you to the church, Acts 2, 47. If you're unfaithful, our plea to you tonight, come home. Come back to a loving God who will, who will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Would you come as we stand and sing?